0: Am I going to do? Quit? That's not an option. You got to keep on, keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up, man. That's my philosophy. Welcome back to Legendary Mindset. I'm your host, Jake P. Richardson. So this week we have Joe Raff, and Joe Raff is one of the most unique personalities in the Weather Goat deal, and quite possibly the most influential from a genetic standpoint. His wisdom is fueled from experience and success, and. His approach to teaching and explaining his process is incredibly humble. Um, his consistent mindset on, on how to generate just high-quality livestock and, and breed them year after year and keep those traits you know, throughout the years is, is major to his success in the weather goat game. And I, and I was really excited to sit down with Joe and get his whole story. You know, goat-wise, um, on the podcast, we've heard from a lot of his friends, and he's been referenced you know, many times, all leading up to this. So hope you guys enjoy it. Jake P. decade too late. When were you born?
1: In the 60s. 60s? 67.
0: So you're, wait, you wish you were 20 in the 60s?
1: Well, I'm alive still, so uh, if I was 20 through the 60s, I don't know if I would be or not. If
0: you'd be alive. So where were you born?
1: Grand Junction, Colorado.
0: Really? Yep. You're, what'd your family do up there?
1: Uh, dad worked on the railroad, and uh, Mom... Uh, stayed at home and raised us for a while and then she got a job in the bank and then she retired as uh, one of the department managers for the local bank up there.
0: So was your family in ag or livestock at all?
1: Dad's family was. uh, They raised pole herefords uh, in a little town called Hotchkiss, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty close to to Grand Junction. Mm And, uh, they raised Poe Hereford since, I guess, dad started showing heifers and stuff like that in the Mm fifties. And so they've been raising them ever since.
0: So showing wasn't, you know, an abnormal thing. It was kind of part of who y'all were.
1: Yep. We, uh, me and my little brother, we both, uh, grew up showing steers and lambs, um, showed lots of steers and heifers and stuff and uh, were fortunate at a lot of the shows that we went to and uh, then later on uh, we got into showing lambs and stuff and really enjoyed that and bought a little flock of ewes and uh, we had some uh, cows that uh, that we bred for show calves and had a little flock of uh, Suffolk ewes that we bred for club lambs So.
0: So what was the what was the showing like, you know, back then? I mean, it's obviously completely different, but right. were you slicking the lambs? I mean, how has it really changed? I mean, if not as big, not as competitive, or?
1: Um, it was still big and competitive, but not near like it is now. Yeah. Um, and the it, when we started to show lambs, we didn't uh, completely slick them off. We put butt patterns onto them. Mm-hmm. And so we'd slick them down to their hip, basically. And then with hand shears, you know, we'd carve in a, the rear end onto them and had a lot of breeding stock, too. So uh, got pretty proficient with the card and, and hand, hand shears? shears, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there were market lamb shows, but it was, you know, the purebred breeding show thing seems like it was really popular back then. People would just have big strings. Were you guys into that?
1: Uh, we really didn't do much into the registered. We kind of leaned more toward the weathers. The uh, we did have some registered use that we'd show, but um, not that much. Mm-hmm. We really just kind of focused on the weathers. Yeah. Was uh,
0: the National Western happening back then? Did you guys ever show at that?
1: You bet. We uh, showed at the State Fair there in Pueblo and National Western uh, every year that we were eligible You know mm-hmm. to go. and we showed in Billings, Montana. We showed in, uh, Arizona quite a bit. Uh, being from Colorado and going to Arizona in January is a nice place to be. <laughs> oh, it's like a vacation, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Um, so when did you move out of Colorado? Did you stay there for all high school and college and all
1: that? All of high school. And then I was fortunate and got a uh, livestock judging scholarship at South Plains College in Leveland. And, uh, so I went. Uh, there and graduated and then, kind of was recruited to go to Angelo State mm-hmm. and judged uh, livestock and wool for Angelo State and then stayed and got my uh, master's as well.
0: That's something we haven't we have in common is we were both on a wool team at Angelo State. <laughs> <laughs> They're the best. Oh, they do they do real good. So you you got a scholarship right out of high school. So did you judge in high school? You're pretty yeah. good at it.
1: Um. Dad was on a college livestock judging team at uh, CSU. And so he was very up on, you know, how to give reasons and lining up classes and just a good livestock person all the way around. Mm -hmm. And uh, growing up in 4-H, he and another gentleman that uh, was pretty darn good too, Mm -hmm. they coached us in our 4-H judging teams and stuff. So uh, we kind of grew up with that and then uh, that was just the best way and the easiest way to get scholarships and work your way through college with that. So oh.
0: So was your dad your first, you know basically the first person to kind of teach you what livestock stuff needed to look like? He was absolutely. Uh,
1: dad was very instrumental on how I look at things. Mm-hmm. Um, we never, showed the absolute best everywhere but we were always very competitive mm-hmm. uh, our county show uh, we did very well at and then at the state fair national western uh, we won we had champion pole herford steers one of grandpa's steers at mm-hmm. national western uh, we had several class winners in the blackface uh, in the sheep and stuff so uh, did very well but dad was very much a part of that and and ingrain that into our minds that uh, quantity is really not the answer a lot of times it's quality Mm -hmm. and i remember one thing growing up he always said that was uh you know it's actually a whole lot cheaper to feed a a good one than a sorry one and it's absolutely the truth and so i've always kind of use that as a stepping board on everything that I've done.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, over the years, things are going to change, but there's some things that don't. And I mean, you right. still hear people say that today, and I think it's still the same case.
1: You work harder uh, at the right areas in whatever you're trying to do. Uh, you're going to be successful. Oh, yeah. And then if you have that natural talent, uh, then you're really going to be successful.
0: So I think... It's pretty safe to describe, you know, what we do maybe as an addiction or a sickness that some of us have. You know, we just, it's, there's nothing else we love more than the livestock. Yep. Could you maybe pinpoint when you got the sickness or when you just decided, man, I'd love this? And
1: um, I would say probably in college. Uh, I was fortunate at Angelo State uh, where they had a show team, Ramblai show team. And, you know, I told you we carded and clipped with hand shears all through 4-H on those weathers and stuff. So when I got there, I met a couple people that were doing that, and they had a show string. And uh, I was like, oh, man, I've done this, and I watched the way that they were doing it, and it was more conventional. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know I can make those sheep look better if you just let me try. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he did, and uh, Dr. Inc. Uh, Gil Lingdahl was in charge of all that at the time and uh, kind of gave me started giving me free reign to that and I guess we showed uh, the two about four years uh, when we got through, I uh, was able to get Angelo State the champion Rambalay Ram at every major in Texas and champion Ramblelay U. Most of them, more than once, uh, yeah. we were very successful.
0: There's, you know, we spent a lot of time in that that ag building they have out there at Angelo, on, when we were judging wool, and they've got probably 50 backdrop pictures on the okay. walls from back in the day. I, I, I need to go back and look and, and look for you. Yeah, I you'll guess, see me. I guess <laughs> I didn't realize you were in there.
1: You'll see me and uh, Mike Carber. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, uh, when we were going through Angelo State, uh, of course he knew how to run a set of hand shears and card too, and uh, so we become real good friends through college and, uh, and hauled all, all over the majors and stuff like that. And we made a, a pretty good team. We get those sheep ready and get them shown, and they looked apart.
0: The I've, I've seen Mike in those pictures, but I was looking for Mike, I guess. but <laughs> I need to go back and look for Joe. Oh, there he is. Yeah, Joe just pointed to us. We got pictures all over the walls, and there's a you. Yep, that's, they have that same picture yeah.
1: at Angelo. Now that was the first Rambouillet Ram that was supreme overall at Fort Worth. Okay, so you,
0: you said um, you really caught that bug. Was it just you know going out and winning those shows or just loving the competitive side or was it just the fitting that you got of got you
1: into? Uh, probably the fitting at first but then Gil was uh, real nice and he'd let us partake in a lot of the breeding mm-hmm. of the Rambouillets too and uh, he let me breed on some of those not all of them but you know some of them and then that really come uh, really got me excited to learn how to create livestock and through there and showing the ramble I met a gentleman Ross Appleton which was uh, a retired county agent at the time and Ross taught me more about genetics than anyone else. He was a brilliant man. And when we were at uh, college and stuff, of course he would, for whatever reason, took me under his wing and we'd go, what he called, make a circle. And so we would go to his ranch and look at uh, his sheep and stuff like that. And he would explain to me, and, and praise God that he did, he had no reason to give me Dumb snot-nosed kid, all of this information, but uh, he really explained to me what he was doing and why he did it, mm-hmm. and uh, I've used a lot of those same breeding schemes what we do with the goats now.
0: What What are some of those schemes that just always work throughout time that maybe he taught you?
1: Uh, females were always very, very important. Uh, Another gentleman that I met at the same time was Don Smith that uh, I worked real close with. And another gentleman that we already talked about uh, earlier today was uh, Norman Coles. Mm -hmm. All three of those guys, super, super smart, brilliant. And even though they go about it maybe a little bit differently, their core belief is all the same and that is females are the most important part of your program mm-hmm. and consistency and that's what Ross really was was aiming at and taught me was the key of being consistent and having a bunch of like bred females that bred true for particular traits whatever it was and keeping them in groups to build up more consistency. That way, if you need to change something, pretty easy to change it, one, be, yeah, change one, one trait. And you right. don't try to go in there and try to change five, six different traits at once. That's mm-hmm. stupid, it didn't work. You yeah. have to look at one and that's what you're concentrating on. Well, this takes literally years to build that consistency for whatever you like. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, okay, I like all of this. I have it in that group of females, but I need to change. Then you can go out and get that one buck or ram, whatever you're doing. And a uh, whole lot easier to change one trait, maybe two trait if they're kind of correlated or something like that, than just going out there and saying, okay, I need to change everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Doesn't happen.
0: Breeding to 10 different bucks. and Doesn't all happen.
1: All Doesn't work. Yeah.
0: So at that point... I mean, when you were learning all that, were you just, you know, okay, this is cool, or were you, like, taking notes, like, I'm going to have to use this, I'm going to raise livestock for the rest of my life, or, you know, what was, I guess, what were your goals at that point?
1: I wanted to raise livestock on a high level, mm-hmm. uh, with, at Angelo State, we were winning basically all of the shows, and, uh, I really enjoyed that, and I wanted to continue that on my own, and, um we need i i guess about that time you know i told you i met uh, don smith Mm -hmm. Uh, got to know him very well went to his ranch and he told me a lot of the things on how he bred livestock and stuff and uh, he came to me one time and he said uh, son i'm going to sell all my sheep do you want to buy them and i'm like well i don't know if i really want to I don't know if I can afford them right now. I said, what are you doing? He says, I saw these goats in South Africa, they're called a boar goat, and I am selling all of my sheep, and I'm going to buy these goats, and uh, he said, truthfully, if you're smart, you won't buy my sheep. You'll go out and buy some goats. I said, okay, well, this guy is way more successful than I am, very well respected. Uh, I'm I'm going to... follow his lead. So that's what I did. I sold sold all of mine and uh, followed his lead on getting these goats. So wh-
0: what year was that?
1: 92, 93 I think is when they imported them. So you were,
0: were you even involved with goats at that point or were you just raising sheep? Or were you trying to make, you know, I mean, I guess showing Spanish goats or anything like that,
1: angoras? Maybe? I I pretty much made fun of anybody that had a goat. <laughs> <laughs> that was not even on my top ten. Yeah. Uh, but Don explained to me what they were and brought them over. Of course, Norman was one of the first with Don to bring him mm-hmm. into the U.S. And, yeah. Uh, fortunate that I knew both of them very well and talked to them and stuff like that about the genetics that they found over. Of course, the first ones we brought over were from New Zealand and then some from Australia. And then we had to wait, I don't know, I guess about five or six years and then was able to bring some out of South Africa. Uh, But they did a lot of the groundwork on knowing those genetics that were going to be coming over and talking with them I could figure out which ones that I wanted to dapple in and uh, was very fortunate and was able to do so.
0: So the first goat, I guess, I guess the first doe that you owned, was she from one of the, you know, those original New Zealand imports or was she from that big huge group they brought
1: from South Africa? the only group? Actually the first group that I bought, I bought from uh, Don and they were just Spanish that he bred to uh, Bo 606, one of the first boar bucks that were brought over. And then from there, I just started an upgrading program. Mm -hmm. And then it, um, I guess it had been probably five to six years later, when they first had the South Africans come over, uh, they had a big sale at Castleberry's. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, where I purchased uh, my first full blood. Uh, And luckily it was in pairs, so I bought the, I went through, looked at the goats that i liked and then looked at those pedigrees on the sires mm-hmm. and the dams if they had them which some they did some they didn't uh, and i found a couple of them that i liked. the rest of their sisters or half sisters and that kind of a thing and uh purchased one of those uh, jr daughter jr daughter yep so jr the
0: like raft jr
1: no J.R. South, South Africans. African yeah. really? South African Jr. I gotcha so
0: I, mean, I remember talking to Norman and he was I mean he got the goats for his daughters to show but had you know big intentions of changing the goat industry in Texas and, and how much they could you know benefit this part of the world I mean there was no weather shows then and, there, and the ABJ wasn't established quite yet so what were your goals I mean were you thinking you're just going to make raise goats and sell them for commercial purposes or did you know that there was going to be some shows popping up
1: I felt that unlike um, ostrich and emus and stuff like that, there wasn't a junior component for the most part. And if there was going to be a sustainable industry, it had to have some sort of a junior program uh, that's going to drive the industry. Mm -hmm. And there were some weather goat uh, shows, very few, but there were some. And when the boars got uh, imported, and we started upgrading and stuff like that, then people uh, seen that as you know something that was darn sure viable. And then more shows and more counties got uh, increased and increased. And uh, then pretty soon we started to get them incorporated in the major stock shows. Which that was when when Houston opened up and took the weathers away from the dairy goat division and made them a division of their own and made a sale. Uh, at Prior to that, you know, the best weather you could probably buy for three, maybe 350 bucks. After that, then they'd started going to the thousands and stuff like that and because uh, there was an endpoint, you know, for them. Uh, early on, I did not like the style of a full-blood boar goat there was, in my opinion, a lot of things that were wrong. They were pretty loose made, had a lot of hide. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of how they were just put together uh, from the skeleton standpoint. So I went out and, and found some other goats that I was breeding to them to kind of make my own composite uh, breed. Or goats or other
0: breeds? Other breeds. Other
1: breeds. Uh, one of which... Um, we were talking a little bit about it. Uh, Mike Harber and his parents down at Fort McCavitt, uh had a pretty large operation of goats and, and was up uh, breeding them and stuff, and they were, they were making them pretty darn good. And uh, they had some Ibex influence in some of those. And when I got some of my first uh, de- decent... Uh, at first, they weren't very good. <laughs> but when I f- first started to get some decent bucks, uh, I told Mike, I said, Man, I'd like to take some of those and breed them to these full blood does that I got. Of course, everybody thought I'd lost my mind because at that time, you still get ten, fifteen grand for any kind of full blood female. But I wanted to jump into making a weather, yeah. competitive show weather goats. And I knew it was going to start taking off. You could just see more and more shows going. Um, But just a regular Spanish or uh, whatever influence, you know, wasn't going to cut it. You needed some boar in there, but the boars weren't going to cut it because they weren't made right. Mm -hmm. But if we... Integrated a lot of these other breeds in there and cleaned up what the boars didn't have. They brought a lot to the table, Mm -hmm. and I'm not downing them because we wouldn't be where we were (laughs) right now without them. So I'm not being critical of them. I just think that where we are now, we couldn't have got there just with the full bloods, and that's why I uh, incorporated a lot of different breeds, and like the uh, Spanish and the uh, Ibex, you know, that Mike had down there was... Uh, pretty big part of, you know, you look back a few, show you some pictures later on, you won't believe, but uh, go back a few decades, you know, and that's where we started.
0: Where are the, are Ibex native to America? or are they, I don't really know much about what those are specifically. It's like a mountain goat, right? I mean, they're wild.
1: They are wild and uh everything about them how they got here that kind of stuff i honestly do not know Mm -hmm. i just know that uh the ones that i worked with uh well that that harbor had and stuff you know they uh coined those as being ibex Mm -hmm. kind of an ibex spanish deal so
0: so you see the boar goats you know immediately you know i want to change them and this is i mean your own idea from what i've heard in those early days of, the, of the, the boars, I mean, yours have kind of always looked different, you know, and kind of been that terminal look. Where did you get the idea, hey, I'm gonna breed an Ibex to make, like, have you, had you seen one before and knew they were a certain way, or I mean, guys like, what characteristic did they have that the boar needed?
1: They, the hide on the boar at the time the when, when I started all of this, <clears throat> very, very hidey. Mm. Uh, very thick height to boot Uh, their handle was very mushy Mm -hmm. uh, without anything just naturally they just felt like a sponge Mm -hmm. Um, they were for the most part pretty weak topped Uh, not all of them but a lot of them were a little steep steep hipped also when you looked at them going away and coming to you uh a lot of them just didn't track right. Yeah. You know, they just they just weren't sound in my opinion. Now, there was these that I got from Mike. They weren't perfect by any means. Uh, that buck that we used we called Quigley uh, that we swapped out. Uh, Mike got one of my bucks that he liked, my top one of that deal, and then I took one of his. Uh, but for that time and that day, uh, that guy was real sound. And white on both ends. I had very little, if any, hide because of the way that they were bred like that. And, boy, you make big genetic improvements for those traits that I was trying to clean up at the time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too soon afterward. I got a son out of him and uh, started to go down that road. And that, uh, matter of fact, that was uh, probably one of the first times that I met Mike Kelly, too, because we had uh, Quigley. And uh, he was just kind of starting out and stuff, and he used Quigley, uh, and got some of those started. Uh, I know on his a couple. I think he used him once or twice, something like that, mm-hmm. early on.
0: What year was that? You think? Kind of oh man. That?
1: Um, I'm not even going to get close to this, but uh, 95-ish, maybe something so like that. The
0: boars were very new still.
1: Pretty new, mm-hmm. yes. Pretty so, new. So
0: did he get them as soon as everyone else did, or?
1: uh mike really and i don't know where he got all of his doves i can't tell you because i don't know Mm -hmm. Um, but i know that he had bought uh, some bucks from me some full bloods uh, after he used uh, quigley a little bit Um, and then later on we were partner on i'd sell him like half of a buck or something like that uh, that we got started that away i don't know and he might have started bought some full-blood does but i i don't know mm-hmm. i don't you. know
0: so I mean, like i
1: mentioned earlier
0: you know your vision from the start of the bore has always been weathers and i mean what was mike probably i mean who else was kind of on that same mindset as you that early on was it was mike the only one or were there some other guys that were
1: there was definitely know? some some mm-hmm. others of course uh harbor uh that was his sole purpose as well um there was, there was, there's a few people that were kind of looking uh, around on that. One of the guys that, uh, Charles Turner, mm-hmm. uh, he probably had some of the very first weather goat sales. Mm-hmm. And as an agent, um, we had a market weather show at the time. Uh, we would go to, to Charles Turner's and, and buy a lot of goats from him. And then he brought over some of the first, and you know, we're talking about the South Africans, He brought over some of the first uh, embryos from South Africa, and he went over there, made his own matings, uh, Mm -hmm. most of them with Lucas Berger, and brought those eggs into Canada, put them in does, and then kitted them out in uh, Dublin, Texas, America. And uh, to date, I would say that's probably one of the more impressive sets as a group. First time right here that I seen that was, and boy they were great. That was a great set of goats. I was very fortunate and he let me have uh, a buck out of there that we purchased from him that we called Colt 45 and we took him uh, and then that changed as much as me using the different uh, breeds of goats because Colt he looked different than anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the bucks that he had there, there were I mean, he had a couple that ended up being national champions and stuff. Oscar, mm-hmm. I'm sure is one that a lot of people know about. Fabulous, fabulous goats. Uh, but Colt was way different than the rest of them. And when I put my hand on Colt's top right behind his shoulders, uh, that's what turned me on about him. Because at that time, even with me breeding some other things in there, you would be hard pressed to find a goat with any rack shape mm-hmm. at all. And Colt had a big rack, and uh, that's when we kind of started going that direction. And uh, glad that uh, Mister Turning Turner went over there and and did the back work on that because that darn sure paid off. Mm-hmm.
0: So you. You, you were I mean you were papering your goats I mean you wanted to raise weathers but you were still involved with abGA
1: correct yeah uh, the guys that I'm ta- kind of talking about uh, they were very very influential in in the abGA on the early years and myself and Mike actually uh, were co-chairman uh, superintendents of the very first uh, national show
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so we were, involved in that part of it Uh, pretty much after the second national show though that's when a lot of the weather stuff started to kick up and i didn't see much of an advantage of keeping papers on goats anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, i was going a completely different direction than what they wanted to go or where they were going which was fine Uh, i just i just knew that that weather deal was going to be where we needed to focus and so that's what i did
0: yeah so when did I mean Texas is where the boars. I mean from the time that they got here even till this day. I mean Texas is where you find the best goats. When did the rest of the country you think kind of catch on? I mean there's there you can find goats in every state now, but when did I guess the other state fairs have weather shows and and you know the the country kind of just start buying them? I guess. Uh,
1: that's a good question. I guess it started to really see a lot of other goats and other state specifically weathers i guess is what i'm talking about there's full bloods everywhere you know from early on but um i'm gonna say maybe 10 or so years ago and somebody may say it was a little bit longer ago than that and i wouldn't disagree but uh, 10 to 15 years ago i guess is when we started to see uh, california market i saw kind of open up as one of the first ones and then uh, georgia uh, I, early on I was able to judge a lot of those shows and I remember going to Georgia National and judging that for the, their very first goat, uh, goat show actually and um, yeah, in Mississippi uh, went and judged their very first goat show um, but I'm going to say that actually you know what that's probably closer to 15 years ago than they, they were doing that and then uh, Oklahoma followed suit Uh, And I guess from the weather deal being super competitive, I would say Texas was first on really getting it there, and then Oklahoma, and then kind of it seemed like the rest of them came very, very close at the same time. California and Georgia, Mm -hmm. uh, the Carolinas, uh, Arkansas. Uh, Lots of people started there in Arkansas Mm -hmm. about that same time.
0: Yeah. So who is – I mean, this, uh, the, the episode before you that comes out tomorrow is, is Judy Kay. Was, mm-hmm. she, was she one of the first Californians to kind of get involved with the Borguts?
1: Judy Kay, I think, was uh, one of the first that was really trying to make weathers. Yeah. There was a pretty big uh, full blood mm-hmm. uh, population there, and a lot of people showing and uh, got to go there and judge and stuff with them. That's how I got to know uh, Judy Kay. But uh, she, like me, was trying to promote the weathers mm-hmm. and the youth and to get that part of the industry. And um, I would say she's probably one of the first in California to do that, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So she kind of described, you know, it was just a fight, just to get those county fairs to even open up a boar division. Was, did you see a lot of that out here? Was it just a complete struggle, or did you, did you think it was going to happen anyways just because it was so momentum maybe?
1: You know, there were so many people that wanted it to happen. I think that uh, it seemed like once we started with one or two shows, uh, and specifically when Houston took the uh, weather goats from the dairy division and their uh, classifications and made, made them a division of their own, other shows followed suit real fast Mm -hmm. so it kind of looked like it was kind of like a domino effect you know Mm -hmm. once one kind of goes and then everybody hey it's not you know you shouldn't be ashamed showing goats you know because i mean they that's not the most popular animal for a long long time
0: especially if you ask the cattle guys they almost (laughs) don't even still consider us a species
1: no that that, that's true and that's fine they're missing out that's their problem not mine (laughs) there
0: you go um I mean, just just looking at the industry we have now, I mean, show goat wise, there's still no like exact rule book on what a market goat is supposed to look like. I mean, you know, sometimes they don't have to be level and, and attractive; they just look for muscle. And sometimes they they need to look exactly like sheep. And and you know, everyone, if you say a blue team goat or a raft goat, you can always kind of picture the same thing. You know, just an exotic, you know, level, crazy fronted, you know, really good looking one. Where did, where did that come into place? Where did, where did you just say, okay, I'm going to make them look like this? Because, I mean, still today, your goats, you know, they have a very distinct look compared to everyone else's.
1: Thank you. And I've always, uh, working with Jamie, uh, I've always wanted my goats or anybody that we're working with, their goats, to look different. Because when you get into those bigger shows, you know, and there's 100, 150 in the class, whatever, or 10 in the class, it doesn't make any difference. If you look different, then you're going to get that look, and then you're going to get a little extra attention when the judge comes by again. And I really, where that started and how I wanted that, uh, it goes back, I guess, to a lot of the guys that I mentioned at the beginning, because those guys wanted to change livestock to meet what their vision was. Uh, and we were talking about it before. I don't think a, there's a gentleman that can change livestock faster than Norman Coles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy can change. He has a vision that he wants to do this. He knows how to do it, and it'll get done pretty darn fast. Uh, mm-hmm. He has that knack. Um, and that's where that was kind of the people that mentored me, officially or unofficially. Mm-hmm and that's what i wanted to do is to create something different and being able to do that looking at what we started with and what we have now I'm very proud of very proud of you know the goats that uh, jamie and i have with blue team weathers uh and i'm glad you said that and i, I feel the same way too they don't look like anybody else's no. and i don't want them to mm-hmm. and that way and I've always uh, told some people, this is funny you mentioned Judy Kay early on when I would send some weathers out there. Uh, I told her, I said, you know, you're either going to be first or third because mm-hmm. they won't know what to do with you. They're going to love them and say, my gosh, this is so much different. This is the best one here. Or you'll be third where they don't have to fool with you for the grand drive. Mm-hmm. And that happened real frequent (laughs) real frequent because that was a a new market and uh just starting to show there and stuff and it had a lot of growing pains but and still today though I mean our goats are different and I want them to be different
0: yeah so part of I mean livestock changing and getting better and and you know the way trends work is you know on it all comes down to you know what are these judges like I mean they kind of seem to create the trends and When I was talking to Judy and she was talking about, you know, getting those first shows started, they had dairy goat judges because that's all they had. Mm -hmm. I mean, so where did those – how did you get the judges to start liking those kind or even how did you find – did you just use livestock judges in general or goat guys or how did –
1: Well, there wasn't any goat guys. Yeah. Uh, So you just have to use good livestock people, you know, and and start showing them, okay, yes, this goat is shaped different than a steer or a lamb or a hog, but – the components are all the same and what you want is is all the same and you made mention uh earlier on and i comment about it where this is something that we worked through early on in the abga when i was on the judges committee and stuff and they would have one show and one goat would win and then another show a different goat would win Mm -hmm. and a lot of those people were so new to livestock showing they thought, well, if that one won that show, that should win every oh, show. Yeah. And they said, okay, we have these breed standards that we judge by or the judges should judge by, and if they are, then the same animal should win every show. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard to convince them or to try to make them understand. People are all different, mm-hmm. and we can interpret rules and guidelines differently mm-hmm. and i understand a lot of people that might be listening you know say, well yeah that's exactly what we want we want you know we want a long to be weather that's what we want that's what we're going to have from here on out or whatever uh, i disagree with that mm-hmm. i don't mind judges selecting different things mm-hmm. i go to this particular show and this guy wants muscle As long as he places on muscle all the way through, I don't care. That's his preference. We hired him to judge that show. I took my goats there for him to judge, and I know what he's going to do. And I darn sure know what he's going to do next time. You get a guy in there, all he wants is long, pretty, tubular, make look like a lamb, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Do it all the way through consistently, I have no problem with. The only judges that I ever have a problem with is ones that will use a long, tall one one time and then a super thick one the next class Mm -hmm. and have everything under the sun. You know, that's the only judge that really probably doesn't need to or he needs more experience judging. As far as taking different types and stuff like, truthfully, I have no problem with it.
0: Yeah. And I I could have thought about that. I mean, some people talk about you know, we need, like, a, a judge panel system where they can, you know, have the same, you know, set of winners every single time. And I always thought if you're trying to make a living selling show stock, you need five completely different judge lineups at a major year just so everything's marketable. I mean, right. every single kind that you raise, you know, has a destination and is worth money if we had the same guy judge in every major. 25% of your goats would have value that year, right? That's right.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I know that a lot of people uh, – and I know when we look at the major stock show judges and say, okay, this guy likes this, this guy likes this. And even though we try to breed, Jamie and I try to breed everything as consistent as we can, we're going to have outliers. Mm-hmm. We're going to have that one that's just super thick out there that that guy is going to like. Freaks. Freaks. And then another one over here, long, tall, he's there even though we're trying to breed maybe something a little bit different you're always going to have those to pop up. So we're going to have, hopefully, you know, one or two that might fit one of those guys. But what I like is that at the end of the year, we have lots of goats that get into the sales, Mm -hmm. whether it be at a county shows or major stock shows. And I think that's just good livestock. Mm -hmm. And when it comes all... You can take all the trends and everything and toss them out the window. If you're breeding good livestock year in and year out, you're going to make a living and you're going to be successful.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Um, something that I've noticed, I mean, you know, I kind of want these goats. To, that's just me. I want them to look like sheep. Um, do you see? Do you see the goats ever going in a direction where you know all the all the cattle like you? Know, you guys can look at different kinds of cattle and you know everyone can agree you know that's a good one and sheep you know same way everyone can agree you know that's a good one but it seems like goats have the biggest gap you know between what one guy can call a great one and what one guy can call you know another guy can call a great one do you ever see it kind of closing and goats all starting to look a certain way or do you still i mean see it just being completely different from a opinion wise
1: i know what you're saying and that's a valid point mm-hmm. um and I can see it maybe in the years to come, maybe closing the mm-hmm. gap a little bit. Uh, but you got to think about it. We've been showing cattle since the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> We've been showing sheep since probably that long yeah. as well, and hogs. We've really only started to show competitively goats. Since I'm looking on my wall right now. I apologize. 92, I think, was the first time I won Houston. 92? I think that's what it says up there. I have to yeah, go look so not, at it a little not closer. The, not the 20s. So, I mean, you have to look at it from that standpoint. We yeah. haven't been showing goats for very long. Yeah. I mean, so, as far as taking an industry, uh, and you look at some of the pictures that we started with, that I started with, and what they look like now. We've come a long way. Oh, yeah. Now, do we have a long way to go? Oh, absolutely. I'm not satisfied with anything that I own. Yeah. Probably never will. Mm -hmm. But there's a progression of quality that I think is pretty well documented, and that is also with our judges Mm -hmm. and everything else. And as long as we keep just good livestock people judging, I have not a problem if they tend to like one a little bit thicker. That's fine. If they tend to like one a little bit longer, have no problem with it. I got you. So when you're,
0: you know, you're breeding, and, and I guess when you first started up until now, I mean, you're, you know, like I said earlier, you like that certain kind. How did you get there? I mean, did, were you just so extreme and how you cold and maybe every single dough you kept has to have a certain thing, or, or you know, how did you kind of make a dough flock that resembled your vision? I guess.
1: I started by closing the genetics Mm -hmm. and got them tight real quick. Uh, And I was able to do that, I think, faster and maybe a little more successful than some other people that are trying to do the same things, maybe, uh, because I had different breeds in my goats. And so I could breed them real tight without having any kind of issues Mm -hmm. with them. Because they're already hybrid. That's right. And so you could breed them way tighter than what a lot of people could without coming up with other issues. And when I wanted to, to get that set of females to look, and this is what Ross Appleton taught me more than anything, that, that group of Rambouillet use that he had uh, there for a while, I mean, you couldn't really, I mean, they all looked the same. Mm-hmm. They literally did. Very consistent. When I mean, he wanted to change, he went out and got a ram from Cunningham mm-hmm. uh, that he called worthless mm-hmm. and uh, changed him again overnight yeah. just with one breeding because his females were very consistent. Um, I always kid people when they come out, you know, either here at Jamie's or other people that I work with, the family tree doesn't fork very often. <laughs> No, does I mean, not no. fork.
0: Especially in the goats, I've noticed that, I mean, just doing this podcast and getting some history, a lot of these bucks go back to the same place, and I mean, if you go on the ABG website and look at papers, you only have to go back not even more than 10 generations and it's all South African billies and, and stuff, but you know, it seems like the weather goats you know, all go back to either Mozart 900 or, or you know, Raf JR or
1: or something like that been very fortunate in uh being able to uh be a part of a lot of those Mm -hmm. you know better sires and stuff and uh i know a few people that's done some looking at it you know a few years ago and stuff and uh there's not very many bucks that have made that made a mark on the industry that didn't originate somewhere with with one of my bucks Mm -hmm. there's just no, there are some, yeah. and congratulations to those guys because they work their butts off too, uh, but I got a bunch of them out there, yeah. been very, very fortunate, God's bless me.
0: Oh, yeah, so what, I mean, what are some of those bucks you mentioned, I mean, did you, you raise 900? Uh,
1: a lot of these that I have, just like with Jamie now, mm-hmm. who I'm partnering with, mm-hmm. uh, 900 are raised with Mike Kelly, okay. um, like, 191 I raised him with a fellow that I worked with in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. Uh, Colt 45 of course I bought from uh, uh, Mr. Turner but from there I made Mozart Mm -hmm. he was a direct Colt son Uh, his full brother was uh, Express which is the first buck that I sold Jamie Mm -hmm. Um, and then you kind of fast forward a little bit and you put some more of that ibex in there i made uh, 900, uh no way uh-huh. and uh from no way we made guns and roses uh hawk animal goofy all of those guys uh kind of on and on and on i guess i
0: don't i mean i don't think there's a doe flock that raises competitive show weathers that doesn't go back to guns mozart or 900 you know
1: it would be I. There probably is, there probably but is. man, there's not very many of them. I don't think.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So um, let's talk about kind of go back to. Uh, sure. You know your earlier days. You're you're a county agent, fresh out of college, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Where'd you go first?
1: Uh, I was a county agent in Mitchell County Where's in that? Colorado City, oh, and then transferred to uh, here in Wichita Falls, and. Uh, I was an agent, I guess, for about 15 or so years and then decided to do this full-time. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you, so you were coaching
1: judging teams and yep.
0: hauling kids to majors? What was your favorite part about all that?
1: Uh, my judging teams. Yeah. I really liked that. at uh, In Mitchell County, boy, I had a competitive group of guys there that uh, did a really good job for me uh, in judging teams and stuff. And a lot of them, very proud that a lot of them went off and they are county agents. uh one of which was just odd. I just reconnected with him uh, this year, Andy Hart. He's a county agent and uh, he came and, and got a goat for one of his sons to show and stuff. So uh, watching those kids grow up and being a little bit a part of their life, you know, and then continuing on, you know, that uh, career path is very special for me. Mm-hmm. Very proud of that.
0: Yeah. So how, how'd you make the decision to do the goats full time? You just get too busy with them and they're doing good. it was
1: uh we bought this place here we're sitting on about a couple hundred acres mm-hmm. and uh it was going to get to the point i had to do one or the other mm-hmm. and i felt like i could do this full time and make it work and uh, with the grace of god i was
0: mm-hmm. there you go glad it worked
1: out me too <laughs> so
0: so right now joe and i are sitting in his his lab his air conditioned lab and around his poker table Smoking c- cigars and, and just hanging out. It's it's kind of your thing is, you know, smoking cigars and playing poker. How long have you, when did you start that? Or, or, you oh, know? man.
1: I've always enjoyed cigars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the, what people, for, oh, you smoke cigars. Do you have any Cubans? Yeah. And uh, rewind maybe three or four years ago, I got to know some guys online and stuff. And uh, they had some... Uh, ends on getting a lot of these Cubans over and uh, that's about all I smoke now are, are, are Cubans. Cuban? Yeah, these are both Cubans. Really? Uh, you are smoking a, what they call a Coro, mm-hmm. a Cohiba Robusto and that one is rolled in 2018. 2018? Okay. Uh, this is a Tilsman, limited edition Cohiba and it was rolled in 2017. Okay, this one
0: says Havana Co- Yep. So my grandma was born. Cool. Yeah. Cool.
1: cool. Yeah, I've got into a lot of the vintage cigars and stuff. Behind me I have my, uh, one of my better humidors and I guess the oldest one that I have in there is a Pre-Castro and uh, they don't have the exact date, they just call them Pre-Castro, so you're looking at 40s or 50s, -hmm. something like that. I was lucky enough this year. Uh, I know a guy in Holland that I got to know real well. A lot of these come from all over the world. Uh, And I told him, I said, I want a birthday box. So I wanted a box of cigars with my birth, month, and year stamped on the box. And he was lucky enough and and ended up finding that for me, a a box of Romeo e Julietas from '67.
0: So he didn't just go make you a box? And no. He went out and searched for a yeah. box with that day. That's pretty cool.
1: Uh, he's, boy, that, I, that guy has access to lots and lots of cigars over there. Uh, but I get some from Russia, uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, what are the other countries? The Netherlands, a lot in the Netherlands. Some in uh, Australia. Uh, so they can bring him in you know and then they advertise them on different uh deals and a lot of it is just word of mouth you know hey i know this guy i'm looking for this particular cigar of this vintage this code uh which the codes on to them that's where uh what factory that they were rolled in and of course some factories have better tobacco than other factories Mm -hmm. and uh they get pretty particular onto them, just like, you know, wine and, oh, yeah. you know, everybody likes a particular vintage and all that kind of a deal. No different with our cigars.
0: For sure. So in the first part of the podcast, you said you wish you were born, you know, or you probably should have been born <laughs> 20 years earlier. What do you mean by that? Just personality or, I mean, just...
1: Uh, you, you were talking about uh, me being a hippie. Yeah. <laughs> with my long hair. <laughs> and uh, I feel, uh, and, and yeah, I... I can darn sure relate to, to mm-hmm. a lot of that. That's more kind of laid back, and yeah. that's just kind of me. That's Joe. Yeah. Uh, I know going to a livestock show, I'm about the only one there with a ponytail, mm-hmm. and I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, for a long time, I'd grow it out and then cut uh, my hair and then donate it to Locks for Love. Uh, did that probably two or three different times. Um, and it has—it's growing a little bit slower as the Time older the older that I get, it doesn't grow near as fast. So I haven't grown it long enough to actually cut it off yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's when I kind of started doing that. I figured, gosh, I don't care if anybody likes it or not, and the goats don't seem to mind if I have long hair. <laughs> so I'll grow it out and benefit somebody that needs it more than I do.
0: That's awesome. So do you—the kind of music you listen to—is it a lot of? you know older stuff
1: like that 60s 70s 60s 70s of course grew up high school and stuff in the 80s so i do like a lot of that uh, but the the old rock and country both eat like it equally really yeah uh but uh 60s and 70s and part of the 80s and i do like some of the more modern music and stuff i mean you i can appreciate a lot of it as well but uh i guess if that's all i had to listen to that's where i'd revert back to
0: yeah which when you're in high school and college which vinyl did you just wear out the most oh
1: man that's a tough one uh back in black back in black yeah yeah and uh no probably back in black
0: is again i might be wrong acdc acdc ACDC? okay so you're rock and roll oh yeah uh would you do you Beatles, Fleetwood, any kind of that kind of stuff? Or uh, not as
1: much Beatles, but uh, Zeppelin and... Zeppelin. So rock. Uh, rock, rock. Sort of yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that other, but mm-hmm. I like rock better.
0: Yeah. Who's your, I guess, favorite song of all time? Stairway
1: to Heaven. Stairway to Heaven,
0: there you go. Did you ever go to those, see any of those guys live?
1: Oh, uh, unfortunately, no. no. I'd have loved to, but no. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Wasn't able to. All right.
0: Well, uh, I think we're about at 55 minutes, almost an hour, Joe. Cool. Um, I guess the last question I kind of like to ask it is, if there's an animal over the course of maybe your experience with you know, raising livestock that is just one of the more incredible ones you saw or, or influential, whether it was a weather you judged or saw or raised or, or even a buck or a doe, which, what's your favorite animal you've ever seen, a piece of livestock?
1: That's, uh, that's a really good question. I'd have to think about this um, because, like what we were talking about, I value my females more than my males, even though I'm probably better known for the bucks that I've made. Uh, and there's been some, some females uh, that have been incredible for me. Special uh, was one of those. Uh, boots had a doe named boots boy she made incredible bucks for us and her daughters went ahead and made bucks for us and stuff Uh, it's not important and frankenstein all of those come from that boots line Uh, she was just about as flawless of a doe uh, that i could even draw out Mm -hmm. Uh, like get a lot of questions from people you know how you breed livestock and stuff like that for me it's real easy girls should look like girls boys should look like boys and she looked like a girl long beautiful wedge shape level was wide base had enough bone long beautiful attractive neck she looked like a female i wish i had 50 of them like her timeless livestock good you know it's like we were talking about good livestock's good livestock and it's timeless Mm -hmm. Uh, structure and muscle and bone and length and all of that never goes out of style. Yeah, never does. Just for make sure. them good. For
0: sure. Well, thanks for thanks for sitting down with me and let me smoke one of your cigars, Joe.
1: My pleasure. You. My, it's my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Well, thanks for listening. Joe's interview was really fun for me, and I got the full Joe Raff experience the whole time. When we recorded, Joe dipped into his huge collection of Cuban cigars, and we smoked. Um, we each had one right there over his poker table in his in his uh, lab there in his barn, and we recorded a podcast. Uh, again, thanks for listening, guys. Be sure to check out Cannon Brown's podcast, The Show, with Cannon Brown. He has a huge variety of livestock guests, and his content is absolutely killer. Uh, be sure to tune in next Monday. We've got the Dwayne Hurleman. See you guys next week.